you have to like invest tremendously in understanding who are all of the different stakeholders, who influences them, what are their constraints, what do they want, what do they fear. You have to know that better than anyone else. And you should be systematically figuring out how you go build real relationships with all of the important people across that. You are in the audience, the live audience, for a very special edition of Powder Keg Igniting Startups Live. Uh, this is part of the Kinsey Academy Innovation Series, in case you cannot read. Uh, we are super, super excited to be partnered with Kinsey Academy on this. Uh, because it allows us to do not only our normal podcast, which is published weekly on powderkick.com, but we're able to do something, this this very special event every other month with people that have been flown out into Indianapolis, Indiana from around the country. So we're here in Kinsey Academy headquarters, which is not just this floor, but also the floor above and below. And below. So uh, an amazing campus here with amazing students and faculty um, that are really helping to create the future workforce for technology. Um, and so to talk a little bit more about this tech and uh, coding school, please help me welcome to the stage the founder and CEO of Kinsey Academy, Chuck Oi. Yeah, thanks, Chuck. But before we get started, I, I know that there are some interesting things that you've been doing. You've been kind of uh, messaging me from the road, uh, well, I guess I should say from the air sometimes, because you've been all over the country and, and probably out of the country uh, as well with everything that's going on with Kinsey Academy. Um, there are a couple of really interesting things coming up right now for Kinsey. Do you mind sharing a couple of those things? Yeah, uh, but before I go into that, for people who are not familiar with Kinsey Academy, we're a new uh, technology school that is training up workers, uh, tech workers, for high paying jobs in the city and also hopefully within the rest of the Midwest region. Uh, where our programs are way longer than the boot camp. So students actually get to, uh, to learn the tech of, it, of something and be job ready, but also less than half the time of a traditional four-year computer science program. So the goal is to be able to train people in a short time possible, but long enough that we can uh, students can get all the right skills and be highly employable when they leave Kenzie. So um, you started as a six to six month to two year program. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. And now, uh, and it started as on, the physical premises only here on campus, yep. in your first campus here in Indianapolis. Yep, we started with just a tiny space over there. <laughs> uh, and, and then we knocked down the wall and we got this, and next thing we know, we occupy majority of the building here. And I think we're running out of space towards the end of the year. Congratulations. Well, the good news is you're not going to have to be in the space very soon. Very soon, yeah. you, you can do the online version, is that correct? Yeah, we've been experimenting with a new model that's actually very interesting, that's very different from what you think about how you learn in a classroom environment. So one thing is we virtualize the classroom. Uh, and what that means is that we actually have instructors that are any, everywhere in the country. So we have instructors teaching from San Francisco, from Silicon Valley, from New York, from uh, uh, South Carolina, from uh, Louisiana. And if you walk around campus, you see a lot of big screen TVs with a live video feed. So actually instructors or anybody can actually get on that screen at any time, it's always on, and walk up. Students could be here, and when we have our new campus in Nashville, and Kansas City and other places, uh, we may not even have an instructor in those cities. And students can just walk up to the TV and have a conversation with instructors regardless of where they are. I love it. It's all about thinking globally and finding those people that know 
uh, sort of the best in class strategies, tactics, and skills yep. to train people up. Yep, that's how you can find the best instructors no matter where they are. And you've got instructors from Google, Facebook, LinkedIn. Yeah. We somehow managed to convince some people to quit Google to come join Kenzie as an instructor. So that's uh, either they're crazy or they, they, they're, they're, they're passionate about teaching our students. Uh, but the best thing about Kenzie is you do not learn from a faculty uh, who's probably better at research. You're learning from people, uh, hiring managers that would, you know, that want to train people that they themselves want to hire. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that you launched uh, pretty recently is the, the tuition program uh, that allows people to pay based on salary. Is that correct? Yeah. So this is another innovation. Uh, I can't claim that we created it, but we are one of the first adopters of it. Uh, the other big adopter is Purdue University. Uh, uh, there's a back of boiler program. So it's called an income share agreement. That we all, if you read the news today, everyone's freaked out by the whole student loan. Like there are people owing even a hundred thousand dollars in student loans. Some hundreds of yeah, thousands. Some paying into their sixties and seventies. Talk about lifetime servitude. Uh, so we also want to show that there is a better way to finance and pay for education that doesn't require you to repay for the rest of your life. So with the income share agreement, uh, what we're doing is we align the school's incentive with your outcome. And what that means is that the school prepays your tuition up front. Uh, you only pay $100, we call it a commitment fee, so it's not free, you don't feel like you're getting a free ride. And then uh, you, you do the Kenzie program, you don't pay tuition up front. And when you graduate Kenzie, if you never make more than $40,000 a year, you walk away and owe us nothing. Wow. Try doing that with a student loan. <laughs> but on the flip don't, side- Don't try doing that with a student loan. They will get you, even yeah. past 10 bankruptcies. Oh, yeah. They will get you. Uh, on the flip side, if you do well, uh, and we're, we're seeing our students graduating, making fifty to $70,000 uh, here in Indiana, which is a, a very good pay and comparable to people coming out of a four-year Purdue computer science program, you pay it forward. So you contribute a percentage of your income for four years, and then you're done. And for any month where your income, say you get laid off or you, 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 you have to take care of a sick child or parent, when you, uh, you, you, you don't make payments that month and you, you go to deferment and there is no interest. Interest does not accumulate, unlike a student loan. I love it. I love the work you're doing here and I love that it's expanding around the country and now online so anyone in the world can literally take Kinsey Academy classes. Yeah, people um, in rural Indiana and everything. Yeah. And what's most exciting is we partner with Kelly Services and we cannot publicly publicize it, but every Kenzie student who enroll who needs a job gets a tech support job that they can do from home. And the hint is it's with a company with an Apple in their logo. <laughs> uh, so well, I'll pretend like we're not live streaming right now. Yeah, I didn't say which company, I just said they have a certain <laughs> kind of logo. Uh, so everyone, uh, and it pays way above minimum wage. So that allows a lot of our students, even remote students in rural Indiana, as long as you have a, uh, a fast broadband connection, you can get a job that helps you pay your bill while you're attending school, all from your living room. I love it. Well, and I'm, I'm sure we'll have even more news next time we've got, got you on the podcast here. Yeah. Uh, but you mentioned the best in the world, uh, people who are experts in what they do, and we've got two tonight for the show. Yep. The first one, uh, we flew in from D.C., Yep, and uh, this is actually someone that I've known for almost a decade now. And I didn't even realize that. I know, that's so I was super excited. <laughs> You're like, we got this guy, his name is, well, and I'll tell you here in just a second. Uh, but I've known him for so long because he's been working in startup ecosystems and communities around the world. Um, I met him through a program called Startup America. Uh, I was Startup Indiana, he was Startup Virginia? DC. DC, 
I didn't know if DC had its own thing. Close enough. Uh, close enough. But long story short, we had a lot of beers, we shared a lot of knowledge, and this, this guy knows so much, not just about building startup ecosystems, but about building startups. He's an angel investor himself. Uh, he co-founded 1776, which has its own fund that is invested in uh, dozens of companies around the world. He's also the co-founder of Union, which is a platform that powers these communities. He is an expert network builder and is a master at building relationships, which we're gonna talk about tonight, about how to build professional relationships and advance your career. Please help me welcome the co-founder of Union, Evan Burfield. And we, we can grab seats here because uh, our next guest is going to be tuning in all the way from Nigeria. He was actually born in Nigeria, um, grew up in California, and uh, is, uh, is a managing partner of a Silicon Valley corporation that is looking to really help launch, innovate, um, launch and innovate with tech companies in Africa. So clearly a global thinker. We've got a very global conversation tonight because literally our, our last guest for the evening um, is the partner uh, sorry, managing partner of Lions Africa and CEO of African Technology Foundation, Stephen Oz. Oh, I forgot to ask him how to pronounce his last name. Stephen. It, it rhymes with it, it rhymes with gazebo. <laughs> Ozubo. Ozubo. There you go. There you go. I did it. Sort of. Stephen, thanks for being here. Let's give it up for Stephen. That applause is going across the Atlantic to you right now. Um, so I want to dive right in and uh, maybe learn a little bit uh, about the backstory. Um, and, and actually, I don't know a ton of your earliest backstory, Evan. Uh, so I, I would love to just hear kind of how you got your, your start to your career in tech, because I, I know it started at a very early age. Yeah, it did. Um, I was, I think it's a really pretty classic story in a lot of startup ecosystems, but I was, um, Kind of horrible student. I got um, expelled from third grade. Had to go to like a special private school. Got back in in fourth and in, in fifth grade. I got expelled again in sixth grade. What did you do? I, I really, really didn't like authority. Really didn't like authority, and um, which is hard to do in third grade. I mean, like you gotta you gotta really, really challenge the principal of your elementary school. I'll get the actual story out of you later. The but uh, no, but you know I, I managed to get into we in in. in I was born and raised in Northern Virginia, just outside DC, and we have a a magnet uh, tech high school there that's um, pretty effective. And so I, I somehow kind of got in there, and so I, you know, I always say like I, I don't even remember what, what remember when I learned to code. Like this sort of um, I think the rise of these boot camps is so phenomenal because I, I had exposure to programs in my um, regular elementary and middle school and high school, so that by the time I got to the end of high school. Um, I'm going to age myself here, but we were like coding on Cray supercomputers, which is now probably less powerful than your iPhone. But at the time, it was really cool. Um, and but still didn't like authority. And so I, um, I graduated, and I was um, kind of supposed to go off to college, and just decided I didn't want to. Um, and my parents were remarkably understanding, and I kind of bummed around for a year or so, and then ended up kind of stumbling into founding a software company, and so we... Hold up, how did you, how did you stumble into... moving uh, around and then all of a sudden you're founding a, so a startup my, company? So I, I went to a really geeky high school. Um, let's, it was like sort of a halfway house for socially awkward geeks, and um, 
my girlfriend at the time, she was a, a year behind me in school. She ended up going off to MIT when she was 16. So she was, she was like freak smart. But I would, I would hang out at her house all the time. She was a year behind me and I wasn't, I was literally bumming around. And I, I ended up getting this whole series of conversations with her father. And he was, I think at the time, 57. And he was a Chinese immigrant. And it's what we call the sandwich generation. So he was getting ready to sort of pay for MIT tuition. He was planning for his own retirement and he was supporting his parents back in China. Um, so he would talk all the time about financial planning and how awful the software and tools were. And bearing in mind, this is 1996. I'm, I'm really aging myself here. And, um, and, I, and we ended up coming up with this concept for a better way to model financial systems. And I, I went off and I wrote a prototype for it. And it was, it was really cool. And it was basically an object-oriented way to sort of model these financial systems that were faster than doing a spreadsheet. And, um, and he really liked it. And he's like, hey, I have a friend who invests in some stuff like this. Um, I put together a pitch deck. Um, How did you know to put together a pitch deck? Well, so that, that actually informs a lot. Like, all this stuff is so unbelievably hard. Like, we're, even the fact that we're sitting here right now listening to the kinds of stuff you do at Powder Keg in something convened by Kenzie Academy, which is training skills, like, none of that existed in, in Washington, D.C. in 1986. Like, I remember going and getting a book from the library physically and turning the pages and reading, like, how to write a business plan for small businesses. Which, by the way, is completely irrelevant <laughs> to anything we were actually trying to do at the time. So it was like totally just trying to figure it all out as we as we went along. But you had a good mentor in your at at the time girlfriend's dad. Um, sort of. Although he didn't really know. Like he worked for a government contractor his whole career. Like he didn't really know how you did this stuff. Like he was a he was a manager in a big big company, and so we were both kind of coming at it from totally different places in life, but we were both figuring it out as we went along. And like, the crazy thing to me was I put together this pitch deck, I was 19 years old, I walk in, I pitch this guy, and my basic pitch was like, the baby boomers are all gonna get old, and they're gonna have to figure out retirement planning, current tools suck, we're gonna build a better one. And the guy was like, cool, like I buy the premise, this demo looks great, how much money do you need? And we literally had not thought that far ahead. So we went back that night, we were like scrolling, and we, we, we go in and meet with him the next day, and we're like, we need a million dollars. And he's like, great, okay, cool. We'll have my attorneys draw it up. <laughs> I know. And I was like, uh, what do we do now? Um, for those that don't know, that is called beginner's luck. Totally beginner's luck. <laughs> totally, totally beginner's luck. And, like, and, and you know, I'm, I'm like super unbelievably sensitive nowadays where I'm in life to like the concept of, of privilege and like rocking up at 19 and like it really helped that I seemed like the kind of geeky people that you saw on TV. Like I was, I was really, really geeky at 19 and like I seemed like the kind of geeky people one imagined were doing things like this. And I think that was a, a huge advantage and, and, and that's informed a lot of stuff but like it was hard from then on. Like there were no resources, we had to figure everything out. Like even getting to the point where I could find mentors who had built anything that looked like a high growth software company um, was hard. At one point I literally drove down to Charlottesville to UVA and I just wandered around the business school knocking on the doors of professors because we were operating the financial services space. Like anyone who seemed to know anything about financial services. And I actually convinced two of these professors to like join my advisory board talking about like networking and how you do it, like I was just persistent and at one point, and, and what was it that 
what was it that got them over the edge? Audacity? Like, there's this 20-year-old kid rocking up going, I just raised a million dollars. You'd be on my advisory board. Like, yeah, I mean, there's a certain advantage at times of being in the, uh, you're either brilliant or crazy category, where they, they just have to ensure that you're not clinically insane, in which case there's probably something interesting there. Um, the, and so, like, in the same thing, when I was... Um, like, it, it, at every step in the process, it was like having to figure everything out all over again each time. And, you know, when I moved forward later in life, and sort of had the opportunity to get involved with Start Up America, like that was, that's always been my touchstone, is like, this stuff doesn't need to be that hard, right? Like, the kinds of resources that, that you guys are creating here in Annapolis, what I've tried to do in Washington, D.C., and now up and down the East Coast with 1776, is like, how do you help people of, of all walks of life, um, of, of different genders and different backgrounds, um, get access to like everything that can unlock that sort of potential and the ideas that they have and, and make it about their grit and their idea, not just having access or not to the networks that give you access to this information. And I wanna come back to that uh, and get some of your secrets on how to get access to those things and how to forge those relationships. But first, I would love to hear, uh, Stephen, um, some of your story of how you broke into tech because I know you didn't start your career in tech, right? You started in, in banking. So how did you make that leap into the tech world? Well, um, I think for me, it was uh, the crash of 2008 was one of the most important things that happened to me when it came down to my transition. I was always kind of a tech guy. I had a master's in information technology, but I, uh, found out from a professor in class one day that I was more of a people person than a nerdy geek. So he kind of gave me the advice and said, hey, why don't you kind of focus on being more of a manager of nerds than a nerd yourself? So I went with that. And um, in the power of relationships, I got to know a good friend of mine who offered me an internship at Smith Barney um, in Beverly Hills. And what that internship did for me was it exposed me to the financial markets at a time where I knew nothing about finance. I would I would switch the business channel every time it came up. But um, when I got this internship, that it meant that I would effectively have to watch the stock markets so I could come back to work the next day and sound smart and be like one of the guys. And I did that. And because everything in finance is pretty much run on technology nowadays, I got a quick appreciation for it and I grew within the ranks and five years later I was doing pretty well at Citigroup and Smith Barney and uh, at the time where the crash happened we were actually Morgan Stanley Smith Barney and in that period you know it became a thing about globalization uh, I needed to expose myself to a world out there I've always been a global citizen uh, as, as was mentioned earlier I was born in Nigeria but grew up around the world and um, I went for an MBA in, in global business, spent time in China at Fudan University, as well as my uh, alumni role with Pepperdine University. And in that time, once the crash happened, we all came out, graduated with MBAs, and we're telling ourselves, what are we going to do next? Right. So we went into consulting. I took my global mindset 
and started consulting for Chinese tech companies that wanted to set up in Silicon Valley and any other type of companies that wanted to set up in Silicon Valley. And the first paying clients we had were from Catalonia, Spain. And they were a high-tech company that was doing a big SaaS product that had CRM, ERP, everything tied up in it. And we launched them in Silicon Valley and they raised funding and their governments were kind of like, okay, how did this happen? Who helped you out? Because this was, if anybody knows the history of Catalonia and Spain, this was at the time where the whole secession thing was really hot. So they went back, told the government how we helped them, and then they flew us out there and asked us to become their international advisors for foreign direct investment. And that's when I actually ventured fully into tech and started taking technology companies, setting them up in the valley, um, getting investors to look at some of the companies that we had set up, and actually started investing in some of them. But, uh, you know, the African bugs kept uh, kept biting me, uh, for lack of a better word. And uh, when President Obama came calling with opportunities around his administration and getting innovation in Africa up to speed with the help of the State Department, you know, again, I said yes, and I and I, I took that opportunity and I started advising the U.S. State Department on all of their Africa innovation with regards to the Lions Africa program, which we still manage today. So for me, it was a combination of what would be an economic downturn, but which led to uh, a readjustment of my perspectives on life. Um, and then, more importantly, taking a global perspective and localizing it. So I'm currently speaking to you from Lagos, Nigeria, because uh, I'm closing deals down here this week. Um, some of them will be on the news in a couple of weeks, as long as we can close, knock on wood. And, uh, and they're quite substantial. And a lot of them are deals that are three, four years, five years in the making. And they've taken that much time in, uh, in us getting them set up, in us getting the operations running, in us getting the type of investors that are mature enough to look at the African market, assess the risk, understand the, play, the games that we're playing out here. And then more importantly, the cross-cultural ambitions of these investors, because um, we are proud to put together now for this deal, a syndicate of investors that are out of four continents. And it's the story of my life. Like we have investors from France, from Norway, from the U.S., from Nigeria, and all of these investors have come together to look at these technologies and know that um, uh, they're, they're really going to go places. So I've, I've come at this with a very, very global mindset, and uh, that global mindset is what has, has guided me thus far. So from Silicon Valley to Lagos to Morocco to South Africa, I mean, Chuck, Chuck and I, our, our history goes as far back as a couple of years ago when we did something called Geeks on a Plane. And, and Chuck was one of the geeks we had on the plane. He, he came out. Uh, we did three weeks uh, in Africa, started in Lagos, Nigeria, Accra, Ghana. Uh, and then Chuck went off on a plane with a few guys to, to Tanzania to see the safari. Took some awesome pictures. I was a part of that. And then they met up with me in, in South Africa again. And, and we hung out there as well. But in, in that whole time, he got to see a lot of the, uh, the startups and innovations that were coming out of Africa. So, yeah, it, it's been a theory of me staying on a plane, living with a boarding pass in my pocket, and always saying yes to international opportunities. You, you mentioned uh, 
you mentioned kind of some of the people you've met along the way and, and the ability to think uh, globally. Is, is there someone, uh, some mentor along the way that really helped you with kind of thinking beyond just your local geography? Absolutely. My, my current attorney, friend, mentor, sensei, and guide, uh, Mr. Richard Horning, uh, he's a man who I've known as an attorney and friend for the last 10, 11 years. Uh, he's an American um, and is currently the um, he's the consul, the honorary consul for the country of Estonia. Now he's from California, true and true, but um, he's been able to um, guide me through a lot of things. When we started the African Technology Foundation, we started it off in his office, and it was you know a combination of things. But at the time, he was running something called the Silicon Vikings. And uh, the Silicon Vikings were meant to be, if anybody knows the Vikings in Scandinavia, you know, this was meant to be an, uh, an investment vehicle to enable Scandinavian companies from, you know, all parts of Scandinavia to set up in Silicon Valley. So he's someone who I always go to when it comes to international deals, cross-cultural activities. He's always on a plane somewhere. We're always, always looking at political activities, socioeconomic activities, and for what it's worth, in the Valley, we are both known as the international guys. So it helps out whenever I have deals from Africa and I have a lawyer that can look at it. It, it helps out sometimes. I mean, literally before this meeting, it's it's about 11.30 p.m. here, but he's in California, and he just sent me a deal of a client who was in his, Af in, in his office doing something in Africa. So he's my, he's my go-to person. Uh, of course, in my time in Catalonia, I met a lot of friends. I made a lot of friends. Barcelona is my favorite city in the world. Uh, so that, that experience also helped a lot. China, Shanghai, you know, lots of friends there. You know, and then, of course, you know, I got good friends like Chuck who want to bring me down to Indiana and have me see the great things going on in the Midwest and everything out there. So always say yes, guys. It's, it's all about that global mindset. If you say yes, good things come. Well, and I'd love to ask you more about how you kind of forge that mentor relationship uh, with, with your sensei, as you said. Uh, but, but first, I'd love to hear, Chuck, uh, from you, uh, if you don't mind, how you ended up uh, connecting with Stephen and, and how opportunities like events, like you know, maybe not all of us in this audience will get invited onto a plane with a bunch of geeks uh, and investors, but uh, you do seem to have a knack for meeting people at events. Uh, do you have any advice for uh, the people here and the people listening to the podcast on how to connect with people? Yeah, so uh, my, my last company, Agility, it's called Agility.io that I stepped out for to start Kenzie. Um, and when I started eight years ago, um, I was trying to figure out how to get customers. No clue, you know, I, I, I'm a geek. You know, I, can, I, I can code, I can talk to computers, I'm very bad at talking to humans. Um, and um, this, by chance, the opportunity came out to start a business. I never thought that one day I'd be in entrepreneurship. Um, and uh, you know, like a lot of my competitors, they tend to take the easy way out. You know, send cold emails, you know, LinkedIn bombarding strangers on LinkedIn and all that. And I thought that, hey, let me try something different. Uh, and why don't I just go out and just keep meeting people and build a network? Um, it is uh, a lot of hard work. It is very tiring. But it turns out that was the source of 99% of all our business today, was just going up and building lifelong friends, 
but not with the initial concept of, I just want to, it's not a transactional relationship. Like when I meet Stephen, my, my first thing in my mind is like, how, how can I get a sale out of him? It is, how can I meet him, get to know him, learn from him, and how can we be buddies, and over time, are there opportunities to do business together? So it was with that... that you're, not allowed, you're not allowed to lie, Chuck. This is a live broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> it was about how many shots we could do together. Yes. Really Chuck. The best business deal, Stephen's right, the best business deal I've done is in a bar at 3 a.m. somewhere in the world, where we're all totally half drunk, and we're like, yeah, we'll do business together. Done. <laughs> I've closed a lot of deals at bars. Um, but uh, it is about going out, it's the hard work of going out, building relationship, that one-on-one -on -one interaction. No, forget all, you know, mobile, social media, everything. People start to get very lazy and feel like they can do everything behind the computer screen. And uh, do not discount the value of actually going out and building a relationship and meeting someone face-to-face -face for coffee. And that is the old-fashioned way and it's worked so well uh, for me. And as the business grew, I uh, get to know more people and I start getting invited to some exclusive trips like Geeks on the Plane. Uh, contrary to popular belief, when people hear Geeks on the Plane, they imagine a bunch of like Silicon Valley billionaires in private jets and probably one private jet per person are flying to the country. We all fly economy. Some of the investors are in business class. Uh, but yeah, we go together. Uh, it, it, you get invited into groups like this. And, uh, and it's usually entrepreneurs and investors and sometimes even State Department people. And then for two weeks, you as a group travel to four or five cities nonstop. Um, so at the end of the trip, you became the best of friends. Uh, and probably have some embarrassing stories to tell each other as well. Uh, well and that's how we, we, we got to meet. It's from there, I, I met people. Today, I have friends literally in every region in the world. Well, and networks like that can be so powerful. And uh, Evan, you've literally built software to power networks like that, from tech stars to 500 startups uh, and, and ecosystem accelerators around uh, the world now. Um, what, what is one of the most important things you can do as a professional or as an entrepreneur to help navigate networks, find the people that you need to find uh, as you're kind of going going through your journey? Yeah, I mean, I think um, particularly as I've gotten older <clears throat> and my my bandwidth has become more constrained, right? So I, I, I probably answer this question now as somebody who's 42 with a three-year-old and an 18-month-old who's not out at bars at three in the morning anymore <laughs> and is not on planes nearly as much as I used to be. I mean, I, I used to be all over the world all the time constantly, but, but now I'm not. And... Like what, what, and I actually think I'm probably more effective now. And, and what it's forced me to do is really, really focus on deeper relationships with people who are kind of nexus, nexuses of other relationships. So what I mean by that is like, um, there's amazing things that are happening in terms of startup ecosystems across the Midwest. Like I can't possibly know the people I should know in Columbus and Indianapolis and Chicago and insert 25 other cities, right? But like, I know that if I wanted to reach almost anyone in a startup ecosystem in the West, like I'd call you, I'd call Andy Stoll, I'd call Kevin Willer at, at, in Chicago, right? Like they, I can pull that thread and probably get through one or two hops to wherever I need to get to. And like investing in 
those kinds of relationships are probably much more important to me now than um, sort of just being out there and engaging with lots and lots and lots of people. Talk to me a little bit about how you do invest. How do you invest in those relationships so that when you need to pull that thread, there's something on the other end? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, you know, he said it, right? I mean, don't, it's not necessarily transactional. And so, um, you know, I think that element of being able to in some way have shared experiences together, um, being able to to share stories. I mean, a lot of this stuff, in what you're, what you're saying about like the old fashioned way, like it's about building relationships and building relationships don't happen immediately. Um, and they don't tend to start with a transactional basis. Sometimes they do, but they don't tend to. They tend to start with some sort of shared experience. And so like, I, I know certainly for me, like Startup America was only like a thing for what, two years really? Like it wasn't, well, this long thing, but it was like it was, it was, it was great bonding, and like it was some interesting experiences in interesting places, and you got to know people, and it was a shared experience, right? Like, like nowadays, it, the whole sort of startup ecosystem feels really obvious, but you know, eight nine years ago, it wasn't, and it was very very much on this sort of crazy journey of like, hey, we're all in various ways trying to like shift the economic arc of our cities. None of us know what the hell we're doing. We're all throwing random experiments out there. Let's share and let's collaborate. And like now roll forward, that's a foundation, a set of shared experiences, a set of bonding that like really matters. Um, and huge implications. And, and now uh, people who are members like work together, they've co-founded organizations yeah. together. And so when I, when, I, when I look at like the texture of my network globally, they're almost always like these sort of key concentration points in my life, like the Startup America experience. Or at, uh, at 1776, we had this crazy idea at one point where we were like, wow, we're seeing these incredible startups doing things in, in, in really important sectors here in Washington, DC. I bet there's startups like this all around the world. Let's go find out. And we launched this program called Challenge Cup. And like the first year we went to 16 cities and then we went to 32 cities. In the last year we did it, we went to 72 cities around the world. And like, uh, again, like my own global network, like having, I didn't go to all 72 cities, but like having gone to a lot of them personally, like it's crazy how being on the ground for two or three days for like this super intense boot camp competition thing, like a lot of people I call on in these cities, I realize like I've only actually been in person with this person for maybe eight hours over three days, but it was, it was intense, it was connected, it was meaningful, it was there. And now if I call up and say, um, you know, hey, I've got a startup I'm trying to support that I'm an investor in. Can you make an introduction? Like, there's a basis for that conversation. That's great advice. Stephen, is there anything that you would add to that? I, I think for me, it's, uh, it's the power of networks and how you learn from them every day. Um, personally, for every entrepreneur that I see nowadays coming out of an incubator, an accelerator all over Africa, you know, they are data points for me. Um, they're data points because whatever product they're pitching, whatever technology they're selling, whatever solution they're trying to implement is a direct indicator of what's going on in their immediate environment. And that allows me to have this very Pan-African view of uh, what's going on across the continent. So just like, you know, your experiences with Startup America, Startup Indiana, you know, I was in a room with, with Chuck on his birthday when he told me about Kenzie Academy and he said, 
and we, and we were in San Francisco, and he says, I'm, I'm going to Indiana, you know, and, and we're going to do this, right? And, and this, is, this is what the plan is, and this is how we're going to do it. And, you know, in the next five years, all the tech companies are going to be hiring out of, out of my academy. And, you know, there were no shots being done, so he was perfectly sober. And I said, well, definitely, man, if you're, you're going to do this, you know, whenever it's set up, you know, let me know, because I would love to, to support it. You know, so here we are. And, and so sometimes it's, it's part ambition and part negotiation, but at the end of the day, it's this free will around networks and knowing that uh, even though it's not transactional, if you're gonna go into a new relationship, I would urge you to be the giver before you are the receiver. I think for me, that's the that's the critical part for me, outside of just saying yes. Every time I go into a relationship, I try to give first. I love that. And uh, one, of the, one of the things we were just talking about, just navigating networks, uh, sparked another uh, thought. I, I met with Evan earlier today, and we just had a really great conversation because Evan is, is the master at this. In fact, he's written a book on it called Regulatory Hacking. Uh, and, and it's all about how to uh, basically navigate the network that is the government. And uh, it's a very important and powerful network. And, and I was wondering, maybe if you could share a little bit of why you decided to write that book. Why did that, it, you, when you talked about it, you said it's a labor of love. Yeah, I mean, so, again, I'm, I'm a, we're all creatures of, of circumstance. And I, I was born and raised in Washington, DC. And um, my father was, uh, lobbyist for the transit system, and my mother was a prosecutor, right? And my sister's now a judge, another sister's a cop. Like, I come from a very public service, public sector kind of kind of world. And, um, and like, when I was getting ready to build 1776, and I was, I was we were, Donna, my co-founder, and I were kind of looking at, all right, if we're gonna build something that's gonna be a catalyst for a startup ecosystem in DC, what should we focus on? And it seemed really obvious, right? Like, what makes D.C. unique and different from other city in the world? Well, it's it's the most powerful city on earth. It's it's government. It's it's regulation. It's connections. Um, and that was also, I think, very inspiring to us because it was like, look, we don't want to build yet another dating app. We don't want to build subscription cat food services. Although my wife does literally use a subscription cat food service because we have like five cats. Um, like we you must like it if you don't want to build another one. Yeah, we. Um, I mean, at this point, it's just Amazon, which is. I mean, but like we didn't want it. We didn't want it. Like if we were going to put our time and energy into something, we wanted to build a startup ecosystem that was going to focus on transforming healthcare or, um, you know, changing the way uh, development works in different markets around the world or, um, you know, how do you make people's lives more secure? Right. Like what are these big interesting problems? And, you know. The, the interesting part, right, is that these, these sort of big, important problems all tend to be in sectors that are highly regulated, and they tend not to have already undergone technological transformation for exactly that reason. Because entrepreneurs look at that and go, yeah, there's all these rules, there's gatekeepers, it's messy, it's not, it's not just about building a really slick product, so I'm gonna stay away from it. Um, and we thought, instead of doing that, like, let's lean into this. Let's become the best in the world at helping startups to do this. And so between um, 1776, between our Challenge Cup program, I probably, over a four-year period of time, probably met with literally three or 4,000 startups in these sectors. And I felt like I was telling them the same stuff over and over and over and over again. And at some point, I went, you know what? Um, 
I'm going to take all of this, I'm going, to, I'm going to write a book about it. I'm going to tell the stories of these startups that have done this successfully. And that's the premise of regulatory hacking, which is kind of, um, you know what, building a startup that's really not in the way that can sometimes grate on people, Silicon Valley sense of, hey, dude, my VR app is going to change the world. Like, no, like literally we're going to try to make people's lives better by figuring out how to scale up an alternative to college that actually gets you into a degree without, into, into a real job without uh, being burdened with college debt, right? That's really changing the world, and that shit is hard. It's pretty hard. And <laughs> it's incredibly complex and regulated, and you have to deal with government, and you have to deal with all these things. So that was the premise of the book. Um, I, I think part of it, though, for me is also, like, I've always been someone who like builds networks that cross lots of different domains. So I have entire networks of like, you know, government policy people. I have networks of startup ecosystem grassroots people. I have networks of like high-end VCs. I have networks of like, and part of I think the interesting part about the book as I was realizing is like, I don't think I could write the book if I hadn't over time built these meaningful relationships and connections with lots of different types of people who view the world differently to be able to sort of synthesize that together into a different approach to building companies. Well, and one of the things that you talk about in the book is this concept of influence yeah. and how important that is in building a career, in building a network. Uh, do you mind sharing one of your best pieces of advice on generating your own influence as a professional? Yeah, so... What, it, what was, what, how much influence did you have? How much social capital did you bring to the world of higher education when you got started in this? Close to zero. Exactly. <laughs> like, sometimes that's the case, but a lot of the times, like, you really want to go solve a problem, you bring some asset to it, but like, I, 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 and when I advise startups on this all the time, like, building influence is no different than building capital, building talent, or building a brand for your startup. It's a process. It's intentional, it's conscious. Um, one of the concepts I talk about a ton is if you're gonna build a startup in a complex regulated market, you need to understand your power map. You, you have to like invest tremendously in understanding who are all of the different stakeholders, who influences them, what are their constraints, what do they want, what do they fear. You have to know that better than anyone else. And you should be systematically figuring out how you go build real relationships with all of the important people across that, right? And be intentional about that. And I think there's often this mindset um, which kind of comes from, there's, there's sort of this libertarian streak that can come out of the valley sometimes that sort of argues that government is, is dirty and government is bad because it's about relationships and it's about who you know and it's about, and, and really there's some sort of beautiful ideal of just building an amazing product that the market, that the, the whole market rallies around without having to deal with that messy relation. Well, but you know what? If you want to go and transform like the healthcare industry and transform clinical workflows, that's a really noble mission. And you're going to have to know people. And you're going to have to build influence. And you have to apply that influence. And you're going to have to be pretty freaking smart about how to accumulate and use power to achieve your end, and that's not an accident. It's an intentional, structured process, and the people who are really, really good at it can use it as an unbelievable weapon, and the people who aren't have noble intentions and fail. Yeah. I'll, I'll add to that. Partnerships, yeah. very, very important. 
that's why we partner with Butler. Uh, you know, we partner with other universities and all. It's because they have those access, they have those relationships when it comes to accreditation, when things and all that. And like, it would take us years to, to, to do it entirely on our own. But through partners, we can accelerate that and do that in months instead of years. I really appreciate uh, both of you sharing your perspective on this. And I think in particular, Evan, just your background being in DC, learning how politics and power and influence work uh, really allows you to share a unique perspective. Um, sort of before we close, I was wondering, Stephen, if you might share, uh, you know, you were born in, in Nigeria, you spent a lot of time in Africa. Uh, if you might be willing to share one lesson you've learned about growing your career, uh, building your network that, uh, that you learned in Africa. Absolutely. There's a, there's a critical part of uh, working across a continent like, like Africa that has to deal with cross-cultural management. You know, Africa is not a single country. Uh, you know, 55, 56, um, and you have all kinds of activities that will kind of transcend political lines, transcend regulatory lines, transcend cultural lines. And when folks come in here, some things and some decisions are made even at city level. So it's still just as complex. And when you start layering, you know, culture and you start layering religion and you start layering gender matters and activity and even down to uh, what could be looked at as ethnicity and ethnic um, activities on the continent, you find that it's a very, very complex beast. So what we've done and what has worked for us uh, quite favorably is having the partnerships like Chuck mentioned with the likes of the U.S. State Department means that everywhere we go in with the Lions Africa program, we're welcome there. And uh, we're welcome there because we have diplomatic relations. We're welcome there because we're advancing the cause of innovation partnerships. But we're also welcome there because we have access to the Silicon Valleys of the world where some of our local economies aspire to be like or aspire to relate with. So what that does is if you're finding a relationship that's difficult on the negotiation part, you may find it easier on the aspiration part. And, um, you know, in Washington, we call it lobbying. And some parts of Africa, they make it clear for us not to accept bribes and any kind of kickbacks. But you find be ethical, you know, lines that you must not cross. So in those kind of complexities, you know, a lunch meeting is not always a lunch meeting. In those kind of complexities, you know, a, a Christmas gift is not always a Christmas gift, especially when it's the middle of May, right? And in those kind of complexities, you find that you want to be able to balance out what is the highest integrity activity, what's the highest innovation activity, what's the highest aspirational activity, and then to that startup that's looking to globalize themselves, what's the best way that they can create value to their economies? You put all that together and you... He was about to give the like best gem. The nugget. The Sorry, nugget. You... Oh, we lost you for a second. Do you mind repeating your last sentence or two? Yeah, I said those lines are always interesting to, to negotiate around. Totally agree. Any uh, closing advice on how to forge that right partnership or that right mentorship or that right relationship? 
Do you have like a, a quick nugget of advice, Stephen, that you might leave us with? Yes. If you're going to pick your partners and you're confused, if you're married, ask your wife, do whatever she says. <laughs> Amen. Because I, I found that uh, every time I made a mistake and I came back home and I told my wife, she's like, I told you not to do that. And I'm like, well, you didn't say it loud enough. So I think she's my first litmus test. If she doesn't like, if she didn't like Chuck, I won't be here. Believe me. Like it's, it's midnight and I'm here, you know, and she's, she's home in California. So if she said, this is a crazy thing, don't do it. I'll be like, Chuck, I'm sorry, man. Can't do it. You know, but I, I say that to say that sometimes you have this, you know, gut feeling about stuff. And, um, I've, I've made a lot of decisions that had all of the right parameters and went wrong. And I've made some decisions that uh, went with a gut feeling and it was right. I've made decisions that were based on uh, pattern matching, which is something we do a lot when you see a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, do your analysis, get the data, um, do all the right things, check, trust, but verify, and then go with your gut and ask your wife. Thanks, Steven. Evan? <clears throat> My wife is, her name is, is Viera Chernova. She's literally born and raised in Russia and um, is exactly what you would imagine as this incredibly icy, stone cold, says nothing in a conversation, sits there quietly, and then afterwards she'll be like, okay, so this person over here was very clearly uncomfortable with this person. Over there, do not trust that person that breaks the entire social dynamic down for me in this, uh, in this completely clinical way. So for me, it's not just trust your wife, it's like literally having this like uh, Russian spy right there with me. And not literally, not literally, that's a very sensitive topic in Washington, D.C. But like, figuratively, figuratively. Um, the, yeah, look, I mean, I think um, this stuff is hard. And I think Chalk talked about this, like I, I'm not an extrovert. I find going out and meeting people and interacting with people to be incredibly exhausting. Um, I, after this evening, I'll talk with some more of you guys and we'll probably hang out and then I'm gonna go back to my hotel room and like crawl up in a ball and uh, probably watch a, some Netflix before bed, right? Like I, I, um, I don't find it easy and it's, it's, it is hard and it is difficult, um, but it's valuable and important. And I think- the, How do you talk yourself into doing it? If it's hard and it's difficult, it doesn't come naturally. How do you? I, I find it's like, for me, and it's hard, right? Because I've, I've, I've been in a place for a pretty long time in my career now where I almost always have a formal role to play when I'm out interacting with people, right? It's, it's not just, hey, I'm me, I'm Evan. It's, um, I'm here, like this, this is relatively easy. I'm here as a speaker. You guys know what to come talk to me about. I don't have to sit there awkwardly going, so, what do you do? What do I do? What, like, and that, that makes it easier for me, and that's probably made it easier as I've gotten into it. But like, I think the, the hardest part is that you're, you're constantly putting yourself out there. Um, and as I've gotten older about it, it's like, there are things that I believe. There are things that I think. There are things that they can write about how you deal with startup ecosystems or how you engage with startup ecosystems or, or regulated markets. And there's things that I think are wrong. And, you know, I, I have a viewpoint and I'm willing to share it, and a lot of people disagree with that. But I think the reality, right, is if you're going to go out there, you're going to say something, something of substance and something of content. If you're going to take a viewpoint, if you're going to go interact with people, um, some of them are going to disagree with you. Some of them are going to like you. Some of them are going to 
um, think you're the greatest person ever, so we're gonna think you're an asshole, right? Like, this is life. Um, but you can't, you're, like, there's almost nothing really, really meaningful and transformative in the world that any of us are gonna accomplish that isn't going to require putting yourself out there and going out there and building relationships and leveraging a network of humans. And that's, that's generally like what motivates me is there's something big that's important to me that I wanna do and I go deal with the pain. Chuck, do you have any uh, quick words of wisdom? We gotta let Stephen go to sleep here at some point. I'm just gonna answer slightly differently in a short way. Uh, how I think about partnerships and relationships. I generally enter into a partnership in a, in a situation where I give them 51% and I take 49. I give them more than I take. And that has worked out so well for me uh, because I've seen so many times where people who want to score every single point, every business deal, every partnership, they go in, they negotiate to the, down to the most minute, unnecessary details because they want to come out of, the, of the, uh, the, the, the partnership ahead. And I find that by coming out a little bit behind, uh, it creates a lot more trust. And over time, because of that, we built a much bigger pie. And we, the, one plus one equals you know, four, five, instead of you know, one plus one equals you know, one and a half. <laughs> That's really good advice and a good way to frame it. I, I appreciate you sharing that context. Evan, I appreciate you sharing your, your vulnerable perspective on connecting with people. And Stephen, I really appreciate you staying up to do this conversation. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> this has been really awesome. And uh, Thank you. I, ho I hope to talk to everyone here again and look forward to engaging with the people here in the audience. Uh, for those who are tuning in on the live stream, please feel free to drop a comment below. We will share this link with all of the speakers here so that they can jump into the comments, answer questions if you have them. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, please subscribe, powdercake.com forward slash iTunes, and go to powdercake.com to find link uh, link to the show notes, which will have everyone's social handles on there, links to their website so you can uh, learn more about the programs they're involved with, and uh, hopefully get in touch with them to continue to grow your network and your career. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, we'll catch you next time on Powdercake Igniting Startups.